Good morning. Um, today is Sunday, April 16th, 2023. Uh, my name is Rebecca Gilbert, and this is my Coming to Path talk. When Truman asked me not that long ago, like a couple of weeks ago, if I'd be willing to give this talk, I froze. It's been a long journey of recovery, and I felt worried about what it would be like to go back in my thoughts and revisit all the suffering that led me to the Dharma. 24 years have passed since I found my way to the Zen Center here. And uh, yeah, I, was, I said yes because I, was, I, I thought it might be helpful for people to hear and um, understand you know, a little bit like you're not the only one who's gone through some things that I've gone through, and I thought it would be uh, also, um, I was curious to see what wisdom I would uh, understand better now, looking back. Um, it's been a long time since I thought about these events, and so, so here I am, and I hope it's helpful. So I entitled this talk, um, the layering of suffering. First noble truth is all life is suffering. And uh, I'm going to just try and describe some of the layers um, from my life that uh, I thought drew me here. Um, starting with my early family life and college grad school and then finally what it was like when I finally came to the Zen Center. I was born in 1966 to teenage parents at an army base in Shirley, Massachusetts. My dad joined the army as a college dropout when the news of my mother's unexpected pregnancy changed both of their courses. My mother dropped out of college at the same time and they quickly got married, thinking that uh, the military would be the fastest way for my father to secure an income to support his wife and child. Dropping out of college was not a big sacrifice to either one of them because my parents' families are rooted in um, rural Wisconsin, farming communities, farming communities, and there was little expectation for anybody to go to college. Most people just, you know, continued the family business, farming, or worked in factories. <clears throat> the only person on either side of my family who went to college was my maternal grandfather who became a high school biology, biology teacher and athletics coach. My dad, on my dad's side of the family, my, his father worked as a laborer in a playground equipment factory, Harley-Davidson, he worked for Harley-Davidson, and then he also worked for his dad's painting business. He, his dad had a painting business. My grandmother, on my dad's side, was uh, a sales lady at Sears and Roebuck. My grandfather died at the age of 54 of colon cancer and left my grandmother a widowed mom of three. My dad was the youngest. And so I never knew him, but, or I never knew my grandfather, but my, I loved my grandmother. She was so joyful. I don't know. She just, we uh, loved being with her. She was just, she loved us. It was so free, the joy she had. I don't, she, she had wisdom from 
all of that um, raising those kids by yourself. And um, my dad and his siblings grew to adulthood and had mar married and had children right in the same small community in, in, in Wisconsin. So we all gathered together you know, for birthdays, anniversaries, all the holidays. We were together a lot um, <clears throat> when I was young. <clears throat> On my mom's side, my mom lived her life as an only child in the shadow of her older brother's death. Her brother was disabled with cerebral palsy, possibly caused by oxygen deprivation during a long and arduous labor and delivery. I spoke to her about this just a couple days ago. She said she thinks the doctor could have intervened with a C-section. Um, his name was David. Her brother's name was David. He lived in a nursing home. And my grandparents visited him on holidays, just very rarely. And my mother was never allowed to meet him uh, or see him. Um, she says she really remembers. The, I said, did you... Did your parents ever talk to you about it? No, they never talked to, talked to her about it. Um, but she was very aware of the pain that they suffered. Um, and um, he died at the age of, 18, of 16. He was 16 years old when he died. And she said he choked to death on his tongue during an unattended seizure. And she says she never, they, they never spoke to her about her brother or, or their pain but she remembers learning of his death because she answered the door when the police officer came to the house to tell, tell them they were staying at a cottage that didn't have a telephone, so the police officer had to come to the door and tell, tell them the news, and my mother answered the door, so she really remembers this. Um, I think we absorb a lot of our parents' suffering without knowing it at the beginning in our early lives, and I know I did. Um, my parents are alcoholics. Um, we lived in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, the you know, beer capital of the world. When I was in elementary school, a big uh, school trip was to the Pabst Brewery. We couldn't wait to taste the beer at the end, although it was root beer. But, you know, um, this is German. I mean, I don't have to tell many of you. I know many of you came here from Wisconsin. It's ironic, I'm sidebar, I've never been to Madison, <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, but it's, you know, it's a German, my family are German um, heritage, um, German immigrants from long, long, we checked on at Ellison Island, but they didn't come through, they came through before Ellison Island. Um, uh, my best friend owned one of the three taverns in the t small town that we lived in, and heavy drinking at every family gathering was just the norm. It was mostly out of celebration, you know, um, but also it was a way to escape the, the suffering, the pain and suffering, um, and to take the edge off. I remember, you know, weddings, people would have a, a shot before taking their vows, or um, especially at funerals, you know, there's a lot of drinking to try and numb the pain. To say my parents' marriage was strained would be an understatement. They fought a lot and sometimes viciously. Um, 
neither had healthy communication skills, and the drinking made things often much worse. I remember my mom strike or my dad striking my mother once, and uh, he would often leave the house in anger. Um, and most times he would go to a bar, to a local tavern, to the local tavern to cool off. My mother uh, once pleaded with me to call the tavern to ask him to come home. And um, to say I was conflicted about that, that would be an understatement too. But I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I, um, I wanted to help her. I wanted some kind of resolution. And I didn't want him to abandon us. The tension between them vacillated between lashing anger and just simmering frustration all the time. Even in their, their even today, they're still like that. Um, for me, the five o'clock cocktail was a moment to look forward to because the texture of their interactions would smooth out a bit, at least for a while. But by the end of the night, the arguing could escalate and I would remember going to bed with the sounds of their violent words and, and just fearful of my dreams that would echo with my fears and the confusion that I felt. <coughs> and I, to self-soothe, I, I had this mantra. I would repeat the words, not there, not there, not there, not there. And this would help me ease into sleep. My mother was raised Lutheran, and my father was raised in a Methodist tradition. And they chose to give us our early religious education in the Methodist tradition. We didn't go to church until it was time for us to be confirmed. My sister is, I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. And at that point, uh, we started going to church so that we could, so that I, so, the, so we could be enrolled in these catechism classes. And while we went to catechism, my parents would go to the tavern where the local farmers brought their eggs uh, to sell. So we would have eggs for breakfast that day. And uh, they would often um, hang out there, you know, till catechism was over. And sometimes with the local Catholic priest who was also there coming in for eggs after giving his mass. Um, and at this time, I started singing in the church choir. Singing in the church choir was my first deeply spiritual experience. I wrote about it in a Zenbo article years ago. Um, I still feel a deep spiritual affinity for the sound, resonance of vibration, breath, our bodies. When we chant together here, I cry almost every time. So powerful, uh, heart opening for me. I began playing the flute. I'm a flutist, and I plan, began playing the flute about the same time, and, um, and I eventually found music to be a, a refuge um, in the emotionally chaotic world of, of my family. We moved from that small town in rural Wisconsin to a large metropolitan suburban community outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I almost quit music playing the flute at this, at this moment. It was, um, 
the band program at the new school was not very good. Um, and um, my mother, in her wisdom, she recognized that this might be helpful for me to keep going with the music. And she found me a, a private teacher, which was great. This woman was amazing. Um, she taught at Oral Roberts University. Um, Oral Roberts University is a, you know, Christian Pentecostal, probably. I don't even know if it's still there. But boy, this was an amazing campus. It was gilded in gold, literally. It was gold. Everything was painted in gold. Um, but uh, th and I think this relationship with this woman, who I'm still in touch with, she's an artist. She, she doesn't play the flute anymore. She's a painter and an artist. She was a real... Um, uh, just a, a real mentor in a... Uh, I don't even know how to put it into words. I, I don't know how to say it, but she was very, very um, patient and encouraging. Yeah, I think that was the thing, very positive. And I think I loved that feeling of, you know, I could go there and I know that I would feel good. You know, she was a person who made me feel really um, like myself. Um, uh, by this point, I'm, I'm, in high, I'm moving into high school. I was a good student. I liked school. Again, I liked going to school because it um, was outside of my house and the, and the stress of being in my family. I, I loved the simple affirmation of getting the answers right on an exam. I was valedictorian. My favorite classes were English and writing, humanities and religion. I had a great religion teacher. I was fascinated by all the different ways you could engage with this mysteries of like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> What's the meaning of our lives and death? And what does it all mean? Um, most of my friends in high school went to a Southern Baptist Pentecostal church. It was uh, a big church, almost, you know, like, almost seemed like the whole, whole school was there. Um, it was lots of music, lots of production. Um, I felt drawn to the community that I felt when I went to the church with all my friends. Um, and then during my senior year of high school, one of my classmates died of leukemia. I wasn't close to her, but at her memorial service, I just was so, I just couldn't, I could not understand, like, I, I, like the questioning of why, why did she die? What was the meaning of her life? She was so young, you know. What was the meaning of all of us who remained? I mean, like it seemed, I had this sense of like, well, what am I, how, how, why do I get to stay? Um, this deep question kind of got buried, you know, in, over the years. I took, I went to college, I studied music at Oklahoma State University um, and again, I just loved the way I felt connected and felt like myself when I was playing music. And so my flute professor, she was a wonderful role model. I loved everything that she showed me about, oh, you could live your life this way. You could go and play music and teach. And um, again, I just, I, I 
I, I saw something way outside of my family experience and even my life experience and I was drawn to it and I just kept following it that that uh, those instincts following my gut and so I, I I threw myself into it I went with went to master classes with teachers all over the country and in Europe and I got to see more of the world than anybody in my family ever did but um, the stress is still there and by college I started using alcohol in a way that um, you know, I was just using it. I didn't drink a lot in high school. It wasn't that in high school, but in college I started using it as a way to sort of help me, you know, get over some of the anxiety that I was having. Um, and then I had friends who were using other recreational drugs and, you know, oh, we can there'd be ways to really connect with your, you know, higher power and so tried cocaine and ecstasy and mushrooms and LSD but all of it just made me feel very muddled and certainly not closer to um, you know resolving any of these questions um, and then my grandfather died I remember walking into the room and just he wasn't he was hours away from death and it was the first time I'd been this close to it and I I was so paralyzed by the, the, the finality of it. I could see he was about to die. I could see it. I just, I looked at him and I could see he's just about to die. And I, I, was, I was quite paralyzed by that. Um, and then something happened that scared me more than anything else that had happened in my life so far. I was. I was sexually assaulted. I was raped. It happened uh, at a party following a college football game. And after that, the feelings of shame and rage and humiliation, it was so overwhelming. The next day, I remember speaking to my friend about it, and she said uh, I wanted to kill him. I was so angry. I wanted to confront him. I wanted, and she encouraged me to say nothing and just try to forget about it. There's nothing you can do. You know, we didn't even talk through the legal, you know, process if I if I wanted to pro prosecute or anything like that. None of it. It's just let it go. Forget it. And I, I took her advice, I tried to. Now, all these other drugs didn't make a difference, they didn't really help me at all, but, but I did start smoking a lot of marijuana. It was a coping mechanism. It was better, it seemed less, um, I had less of a hangover if I was smoking marijuana and not drinking. And uh, I went to grad school. I kept working on my music career um, and I, my teacher at that time was an orchestra player and I, I just fell in love with the orchestra. I played in youth orchestra in high school. I fell in love with the sound of the string sound just enveloping you. Just, it's like a, just a huge blanket of comfort. Um, and my teacher was an orchestra player. So I, I, I began, I, I attached myself to that idea. I want to play in an orchestra. And it was, um, it was, it's a hard process winning an orchestra audition. <laughs> I took 
dozens of auditions. Um, but I, I didn't give up. It requires you know, so much discipline, physical discipline with just playing the instrument, but also just mental conditioning that I worked on with my physical training, you know, trying to work on um, releasing tension, um, which was not just about the music, it was about my life, right? Um, working on my diet, massage, and you know, the stronger I got in my body, the more confidence I got, and um, I was able. I thought that you know, I I thought I was moving past this. I these traumas that were laying latent in my unconscious. I thought that's what was happening, but um, it just kept piling on. Right, my grandmother died. It was a peaceful death. She was in her sleep, but then a very close friend of mine, a classmate of mine. Uh, in graduate school, he he died uh, completely unexpectedly. He had a peanut allergy. He was traveling with the school orchestra in Europe, playing concerts with a group of friends, went out to eat at a Chinese restaurant, and the food was prepared with peanut oil. He went into epileptic, he went into a seizure, and he died on the tube. He wasn't wearing a uh, dog tag. He didn't have an EpiPen. Nobody knew what was happening. They knew, nobody knew what was going on. And this... I, again, I just thrown into this state of what, what is happening? Why is this happening? Why him? He had just been married. He asked me before he left to check in on his wife because they were just brand new and they had just moved to the town that they were living in. We were all living in. Um, at this point, there was a. Um, I began to attach a lot of these feelings to specific pieces of music and um, I remember listening to the Adagietto from one of the Mahler symphonies, I can't remember which one it was, over and over and over again trying to find the answer in the music. Like what is going on? Why did he have to die that way at that point in his life? Why? So I uh, finally reached a, a point where I couldn't carry anymore, and I, I reached out to a friend who was studying psychiatry, and I got advice on how to find a therapist. Um, she recommended I find a behavioral therapist, and so I did. And she said I should interview people. I did not. I was too desperate. I just took the person who answered my call first. She helped me quite a bit. I was able to confront the rapist. I worked on expressing the suffering of my early childhood in a few sessions with my parents. It was, it was really, it was profoundly helpful. And um, then I, I won a job in an orchestra and had to move out of town. And I will never forget this therapist's words to me at our last session. She said, now you've done some good work. Now you're gonna to have to figure out your spiritual life. I remember it so well because it touched a nerve that I had been avoiding. Um, 
that made the nerve of how very lost I felt. How I I didn't know where I didn't know where to look for that. Um, I couldn't stomach what my experience of Christianity was, was like. It, it it was it was not it didn't look good to me. I didn't feel any resonance with it. Um, so the question remained at that point. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina. I was playing principal flute in the Charleston Symphony there. Um, I was still using alcohol and marijuana, not as much, but I was still using it. Um, and I started having terrifying nightmares that I couldn't awaken from. I would, um, it, 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 would it was uh, about somebody coming into my house. I could see the house. I was in this house in an upstairs bedroom, way away from the street. This person would come in the house and, and suffocate me. And then I would try to wake up and I couldn't wake up. I, I would be paralyzed in bed. I couldn't breathe. I, and I, I don't know how long it lasted. Eventually I took a breath somehow, but this was a recurrent nightmare. Um, I told a friend about this and she said, oh, I have a wonderful Jungian therapist. You can, maybe you'd like to see her. And I, I did. Um, this was another very wise woman. Um, and she, we worked on my dreams and, you know, I became less afraid of interacting with my, what well, these, uh, this energy that was in my unconscious. And I be, started to develop a relationship with it. And, um, it was a beginning. The same friend invited me to meditate with her. She had a meditation practice where she um, spoke to her guardian angels and she used to have a pendulum and she would uh, use her pendulum to speak to, to some, the pendulum was supposed to measure and respond to magnetic or electromagnetic magnetic energy. And so um, she had this pendulum and she used it to decide what she would eat sometimes some, and she'd use it to communicate with this guardian angel. Well, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll just, I didn't have a guardian angel. I didn't have a pendulum, but I liked meditating. We, we were good friends and we exercised together and, um, she was a massage therapist. She was my first, one of my massage therapists. So anyway, I felt close to her and I trusted her. So we, I would meditate with her. It was like once a week or something like that. Um, <clears throat> and then not that long after that, I won another job and that was with the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. So I came to Rochester and as I was preparing to come here, um, I spoke to my, I, I was, I was invited to play, um, as a substitute acting principal flute with the Boston Symphony. I was going to play there for the summer between when I left Charleston and came here. <clears throat> and my friend said, oh, there's a wonderful yoga center near Tanglewood. You should go to Kripalu. Go to Kripalu, get a massage, maybe take a yoga class, you know, just go, see what it's like. So I did. And um, 
the yoga class. I, I've done some yoga, but I, not a lot. My yoga practice is much more developed now. But after the yoga class, there was a meditation. They led a 15-minute meditation. And this was, again, one of these touchstone experiences where I was like, oh my God, this is amazing to sit here in this energy with people, like-minded people. It was so like, oh, this, this might be it. I mean, I couldn't do it there. I didn't live there, but I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll go to Rochester and I'll, I'll see if I can find a sitting meditation group. That's what I'll do. Um, <clears throat> so that was in 1996. It took two more years for me to find my way to the Rochester Zen Center. I only lived on Vic Park B, just two blocks away. <laughs> but in those first two years, my focus was on the orchestra and the music. I wanted to get tenure. I still felt very vulnerable and emotionally fragile. I had done enough work on myself to know that there was a lot more to do. But I felt I couldn't risk distracting myself from, from getting the job. Um, I, I didn't feel safe. I continued the body work, you know, swimming. I started dancing. I had massage therapy. And I still was using, you know, marijuana and alcohol to cope with the rest of the anxiety. When I finally came to my first workshop, the first person I met was Keith. <laughs> oh, God. I was so and he just sat there in the link with me talking the way he talked and very, he still talks. It's very calm. Um, and um, from that first workshop, I remember um, so many things um, that seem to, I don't know if they're really from the workshop or if they've just been echoed so many times by um, Roshi, Bowden Roshi. Um, he <clears throat> talked about monkey mind. I love this idea of monkey mind. I feel like at the time I was like, really? What's a monkey mind? Mm -hmm. What does that mean, actually? And now I'm like, oh my God, I just, I like the monkey mind. That's all it is. It's like all the time, the monkey mind. Um, I'm married now and I have two beautiful sons. And um, I think, oh God, that's monkey mind right there. Those kids, their mind is just like, wow, all over the place. So, um, but that came from the workshop. Um, He asked me, after I became a student, a formal student, which was pretty quickly after, I don't remember how long, actually, um, but it seemed quick, because as soon as I got here, I, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I love these people, I love the feeling in this building, I, I, um, I didn't feel like I struggled with sitting, because I had worked on so much different kinds of mental work to try and improve my concentration to be able to play in the orchestra. I didn't feel that, but but I was 
terrified all the time. I couldn't have the stick. I remember my first sashin. I said, no, I can't. Please don't hit me. Just don't. I can't take it. So um, that eventually went away. <clears throat> um, Hello? Come back. Oh yeah, I have to talk about this, I forgot. More therapy. So, um, Roshi, um, I, you know, I, he, I talked to him about, enough about my story that he, and I, I think I asked him, I said, I don't know, I think I might need more therapy. And he, uh, he said, okay, well, it can be very helpful. Um, and he recommended a therapist in town who I um, so grateful to have found um, his this Davenlu therapy. Davenlu therapy is very it's, it's come in to be short-term very um, um, uh, I'm not going to say confrontational, but I just did. So confrontational. Man, you know, so like I went through this process where I, we started with my parents. It was really mostly my parents. And like, how deep are those feelings? How really digging into it and um, a little bit of kind of role playing. Um, and to the point. One of sec. Yeah, I know. There's something going on with the phone. This thing. Stop. It's it's on the. I don't understand my devices. It's, it's Siri thing is is on. My, you know, my email, just sidebar, my email address is Rebecca Loteca because I'm very, like, I don't understand these stuff. I've got my iPad here for people who are online and don't know what's going on. And, I, okay, I think this microphone thing is turned off now. Okay. All right. So, Davenlu therapy. Um, yeah, I I did more therapy. And Davenlu, I, it was very powerful. So, I mean, I have my sort of backup plan if music wasn't going to work out was always psychology so I loved you know like looking back and like wow I did all this therapy it's so good there's so many different ways people can find um, help um, um, so okay Uh, where I am now, I'm still, oh, I love Moo. I remember my first machine was with um, Sonia Sensei, Bowden's sister. And um, she described uh, the, the, the sort of a mind, <laughs> mind state's the wrong word, but the way to come to practice, it was, she used these words. She said, um, first of all, your Buddha nature is perfect and whole, and you can come to be in relationship with your, with your 
Buddha nature, go to your practice like it's your lover. And I was so relieved to find so much love here and um, perfect and uh, whole love. Um, so that's what drew me. I'm where I am now, I'm still questioning. Um, every day is a gift. No guarantees about anything. I've had more near-death, intimate, personal experiences. My husband has almost died twice since we've been married in three years, or not three years, 13 years. We've been married 13 years. Um, it took all oh, a solid 10 years of Zen practice many sashins for me to uproot enough of the obstacles I had around intimacy and relationship before I could commit to a relationship and marriage. My uh, fertility story is um, a long one and for another talk, but I wanted to say here that if there's anybody struggling with fertility challenges, Please know I'm available to you as a resource. I'd be happy to listen, empathize, share, help in any way that would be meaningful. Um, I am so, so grateful to the countless beings here at the Rochester Zen Center and all of the people that were on my path before finding my life here in Rochester and at the Zen Center, including um, those that have been the source of much pain and suffering, including my parents. I, I do love them dearly. Um, my mom is, uh, they're both still alive. They were so young when they had me, um, but their health is failing. And um, she worries very much about me. She, as I got further into my Zen practice, she uh, in her aging and her failing health, really clung to her uh, Christian faith. And she just texted me yesterday how worried she is about me. Um, and I just wrote to her, I said, you don't have to grieve. It's, I am strong, my heart is strong, and it's whole. Um, So um, I just will close with Rumi. <laughs> I love Rumi. Love is the water of life. Jump into the water. If there's anybody who has any questions, I'd be happy to.
Brenda. You're supposed to say your name. Hi, this is Brenda. She, her, my pronouns. Thank you. Um, thank you for that. We've uh, known each other a long time. And uh, I'm glad we're both still here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah, we will. Good. Yeah. It's good here. That's all. <laughs> Rebecca, I have two questions. Yeah. Really quick. First, thank you for um, sharing with us. That was really powerful. My first question is, is your mom worried about you because you're not close to your Christian faith? And my second question is, uh, are you close to your sister at all? My mom is worried that, yeah, she, she says it that way, that I have not, yeah, I think whatever you said, that was it. Yeah, but she's also worried that she won't see me in heaven. Because she really feels that if you don't have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not going to heaven. So she's worried she's not going to see me again when she dies yeah um my yeah my sister and I are close um she doesn't live here but um yeah we're we're, we're pretty close thanks for the question Rebecca yeah you did a solo performance in Nazareth a week ago did you not I did you were you were stupendous Thank you. You're just stupendous. Thank you. Thank you. So let's uh, see if any of the Zoomers have have questions. Uh, GSI should be on online. Uh, are you there? On online. So Ron Mitchell, go ahead and unmute yourself, and then mute yourself when you're done. And then for the folks that are in the Zendo, if you can speak up a bit so that we can hear your question. We can hear Rebecca okay, but it's the questions from the Zendo we can't hear. So go ahead, Ron. So so I'm guessing that the Zazen helped the, with your therapy and music work. Can you share in ways that it, it helps um, go along with your therapy and music work? Yeah. Um... Well, I guess I will f I'll start with <laughs> when I first started practicing, I thought, oh, this will really help me in my performances. It'll really help, like help my concentration because I was having, you know, like I had, you know, concentration breaks. I didn't like, you know, like when I would perform, I would, I didn't like playing from memory because I was afraid of making a mistake. And I, so I was, I was like trying to, I thought the Zazen would help me make less mistakes. And when I played the, when I played music, um, that's how it started, but then it became uh, so much more. And I guess rather than going through all of the steps in between, I'll say that just last night I gave a performance with the orchestra and 
I, um, in preparation for this talk, Roshi's advice was make sure you sit a lot. <laughs> so I did. I sat a lot yesterday, including, you know, right before the performance. And um, it was powerful. It was, it, you know, it's uh, there's something about being so present, so there, like being available for everything that's happening right then. It was very powerful. I mean, I, I sit, you know, I don't often sit right before a performance, but if it's a big one, I, I do. And, um, you know, the more I do, the deeper it is and the more <laughs> fantastic it is. So I guess that's what I would say about that, Ron. Thanks for your question. Oh, therapy? Yeah, it's good for therapy, too. <laughs> really good. Anyone else online have a question or a comment for Rebecca? Okay, I see no one else yet. So back to the Zendo. Jerry here. Well, I really appreciate your story. It's very similar. <laughs> I do come from an alcoholic background. Uh, and uh, you know, the thing I really appreciate is that you recognize the help you've had along the way, even to here. And uh, you know, even you know, just to work, work your way through the suffering. And to me, this is one of the two places I go to where I feel freedom, is my meetings and also here, because here, uh, the suffering is, you know, it's, it's more clear. It's, it's not, for me, suppressed as I had the tendency to do. And uh, uh, so I really appreciate uh, uh, what, you, what you've said. Thank you very much. It's not to be. Looks like we have a question from Wayman. Wayman, go ahead and unmute yourself. Oh, unmute? Uh, You're unmuted now. Got it. Okay, yeah, yeah. Rebecca, it's absolutely wonderful. incredibly moved by your complete, wholehearted sharing of of did, did anyone hear that or did Yes, we heard it. Thank you, Wayman. Okay. Oh, thank you. Are there any more uh, questions here? Any points? Just an appreciation that um, my parents struggled uh, as Southern Baptists with uh, my going for, for Buddhism too. And um, I suffered with them. I think we all suffer with, um, with our parents. Some of us suffer from them. <laughs> Thank you.
Yeah. Hi, this is Luca. Um, Rebecca, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so openly um, about you know your upbringing and your assault and your escape mechanisms and just everything. And um, I really appreciate hearing not only the you know the courageous vulnerability that you brought but also how you found support through therapy and body work and art um, you know supplementing your Zen practice I think my impression at least is that there can be a tendency to spiritually bypass a lot of a lot of the stuff um, the suffering and the traumas that we experience in our lives and, and to just sort of bliss out in Zen practice in some way or to just numb out using it. Um, and I have the strong impression that you did not do that and you, um, you engaged with it in a lot of different ways over the years. And um, yeah, I just really admire that. So thank you for sharing. Okay, if there's uh, nothing more, one more, one more. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Rebecca, you, uh, this is Mitchell, by the way, and <clears throat> you mentioned at the beginning that you wanted this talk to be called The Layering of Suffering. Um, can you speak a little bit about kind of what it means to like peel back those layers or especially like in the light of having children of your own um, trying to maybe protect them from your own trauma or, or um, I don't know I don't know what my just, just yeah just what it, what does that mean for, for you Well, I, I guess I chose the words layering because, you know, Roshi often would talk about the Zen practices like peeling back the layers of an onion, right? And um, so I chose that because that, so with my kids, um, I mean, uh, <clears throat> they, they, they do Zazen with me. I mean, it's, you know, they, my oldest was almost virtually conceived here. We were doing uh, IVF. Um, so they, they are, they've grown up here. Um, do I want to protect them? I, I don't, of course I want to protect them, but I think I, um, with, with the Zen practice, I, and the Zazen that they do, I mean, I think of it as a life skill for them. Um, that it's not a, it's not a religion really for them it's not they you know they don't they they're very ooey they I, I, I hugged them before I came I said I'm doing something hard today so I need your support they were so great they both gave me these big hugs you're gonna be great mommy <laughs> my, my oh, Julian said you'll be better I was like better was like <laughs> <laughs> he said better than you think you're gonna be. <laughs> Um, I think of it as a life skill for them right now, you know, and, and um, as far as protecting them, God, yeah, I'd love to protect them, but they, uh, 
you know, it's not possible, really. I mean, I think the best we can do, or I feel like the best I can do for them, is that uh, we give them the grace to um, just be present for them through all the things that they are going through. And then, um, again, the life skill of being able to be in their lives as presently as possible. So, um, and then the rest of it kind of just takes care of itself. I mean, not everything, but, you know, I'll be the guide as much as I can, and um, I trust them. I think, um, and I trust the, you know, I trust what I found here as a sort of container for it. Um, I don't know if they'll continue to practice, but I don't know. It doesn't really matter right now. It's just they have access to it, and I don't think they'll forget it. You know, it's part of their lives now, right? Um, so I didn't have that. Did I, did I want to try and give them a different life than I did? Yes, I did. But not in every way was it possible. I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, I still have a temper. <laughs> you know, it's, I remember, oh, I can't believe I, I remember when Julian, my oldest, was not that old, and I got so angry, I hit him. I mean, I, was, I hit him out of anger. And I, I, I mean, it was a shock to me. Like, oh, my God. I, I mean, my, my parents did hit me. Um, I thought, oh my God, I'm doing what they did. And anyway, it drove me back to Matt. I did more Zazen and, uh, and my temper is much better. I asked them. <laughs> <laughs> my temper's better? I said, yes, mommy, you're getting better. <laughs> you have such courage. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, We'll, uh, we'll end with the, uh, with the four vows. First, I just want to say thank you, Rebecca, for sharing today and for, for all you. All you contribute to our sangha as well. Yeah. 